you brought a Bible this morning, would you go ahead and open it up to 1 John? If you uh, do not have a Bible, we always have paper Bibles back on our Give and Grow table. You may feel free to come in, pick one of those up when you come in. And if you do not own a Bible, just take it with you. Make it uh, our gift. If you want, you can tell people you stole the Bible from church and uh, you'll look cool. Uh, but please, we want everyone to have a, a Bible. Um, and if you have a smartphone uh, and it has a Bible on it, totally feel free to pull that out. You can use that uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible on your smartphone, we encourage you to download one to it. That way, wherever you go with your smartphone, you've always got a Bible available. And so that way, instead of going and being like me and surfing Twitter or getting on Facebook or Instagram, maybe when you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room or you're just finding yourself with a moment, you could pull out the Bible and just spend a moment there uh, learning and, and growing. We launched Riverwood on Easter Sunday, 2014, and to kind of give the Waverly community a glimpse of what our worship gatherings might look like, we did some preview services in the fall of 2013. And as Leanne and I moved into the community, one of the convictions we had was we were not trying to start a church just to take other Christians from other churches. We really wanted to find the people that either were, were brand new to Waverly or did not have a church home, that, that were not connected with Jesus. We, we just had this conviction that we were to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. We ended up meeting this young couple and invited them to what we called a vision night. Before we did these previous services, we did these vision nights and they came and I could tell at first they were kind of like, whoa, what is this? But some reason they continued to kind of come and they were intrigued and eventually they came to our first preview service. And I remember afterwards walking up to them to, to talk to them and she looked at me with these eyes that were just really wide and says, wow, that, that was incredible. And then she said, I have never learned so much from a sermon in my life. Now, I will be honest. A part of me was really flattered. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, thank you. <laughs> Great. But another part of me was just excited, thinking like, God is drawing her and her husband. They, they were unchurched, a little bit of church in their background when they were kids, but not attending anywhere, really no grasp of the gospel. They were just really on this beginning of searching spiritually. And so this had me excited. But something kind of happened after the second and, and third preview service. And I, I'll be honest, the third preview service, my message at that service was probably the worst sermon I have ever given. I mean, it just fell flat. I won't give all the reasons why, but it was, it was awful. Okay. So I will just, I will own that. It was, it stunk. And, and as evidence, almost everyone who was at that preview service didn't come back. Uh, and honestly, I wouldn't blame them. If I'd heard that sermon too, I mean, have gone, oh, okay, that, this guy's not very good. But I think I improved a little bit and we actually launched Easter Sunday. And this couple, they came to like the first three or four of our services. And then she contacted me and says, hey, can we get together? I was like, sure, yeah, wh wh whatever you need. And so we, we ended up meeting at Duos. I remember we're sitting outside and I, I was like, what's up? She says, I took a public speaking class when I was in college and I've given a couple of, of, of you know, public, you know, me messages, uh, delivered, uh, speeches. And, um, I, I just want to coach you. Now I, I'll be honest. There was a part of me really hurt because she told me after the first message, like, wow, that was great. And now she's about to coach me because she's had one class and has done a public speaking a couple of times. And I know I'm not the world's best public speaker. Like, I'm not being invited to come and speak at conferences or, or, or youth group retreats. You know, I, I'm, I'm not being booked to come as a speaker. So I realize I'm not an awesome public speaker. But I've had moments where people have come up to me and, like, told me how God has used my message to really help shape and change their life. You know, so I, I, I'm sitting there like, 
yikes, this, this hurts. But there's another part of me that was just like, okay, Aaron, humble yourself. Maybe she's going to help coach you. Maybe God's using this moment to help teach you. And, and this is going to help make you even more effective. And so I said, okay, what is it you think I need to improve? And she said, Aaron, you repeat yourself way too much. Ouch. Now, I, I realize, like most people, that if I'm not really well prepared, I, yeah, I may kind of just talk in circles. But I, I just wanted a little bit of clarity. And, and I said, can, can you give me an example? And she pauses, and she closes her eyes, and then just kind of looks up and says, if I hear that we are to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived one more time, I'm going to pull my hair out. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, well... You just were able to recite back what I wanted you to get. So I think you just proved my point. Like, it worked. It was effective. But according to her public speaking class and her opinion, you only need to say something like that once, maybe twice, and people will get it. Now, if you are like my friend, and you think that you really only need to hear something once or twice, and you're good, to hear it more than that is just being repetitious, and it gets boring then you are really going to struggle with the rest of 1 John. Because John repeats himself over and over and over and over. Like, I really struggled this week a little bit on this message because John just keeps going in circles. And I was like struggling, like, how do I put together an outline? How do I help structure this? Because he repeats himself constantly. In fact, there are three key words, three key themes that he repeats over and over through this book. Last week, we saw the first one. It was the word life. Uh, he loves this word. And maybe it's because, in his mind, that Jesus comes to bring spiritual life. And so for him, life and Jesus are just intertwined. And so he can't help but repeat this idea of life. We need life, eternal life. Jesus brings life. And so we saw last week, we only did four verses, and he talked about life three times. We, we, uh, if we were to look at the entire book, which we will over the course of these weeks— you would see he talks about life in the very first verse of this letter, and he talks about it in the second to last verse. And guess what? He talks about life in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. I mean, it is scattered throughout. He can't help but repeat the word life. The second word that John repeats over and over and over is the word love. I, we're going to look at this idea more next week as we get into it. But I, I was really curious. I, I suspected that this is the one that he talks about the most and sure enough, I was right. I, I, and again, I was just using my English Bible. I, I'm not fluent in Greek. But just in my English Bible, I started reading through the whole book, and I started counting. And I counted 43 times. I may have missed a couple, but at least 43 times. Whether it be talking about the love of God for us or the love that we should have for one another, John talks about love. It, it's like this driving theme in his life and his teaching. And I think he wants love to be a driving theme in your life and in your words as well. And so he just can't help himself but repeat the word love. Well, this week, we get introduced to the third word, and that is the word light. Now, when John uses the word light, he's not talking about foods that are lacking in fat or flavor, all right? He's not talking about feathers and balloons. I mean, he's talking about the substance, the wavelengths that allow us to see. And he almost always uses it as a metaphor. It's an illustration and he wants us to realize that God is light, but we live in darkness. And today, we're going to see he makes it as plain as day. The way out of that darkness into the light is Jesus. 
And so, Heavenly Father, as we get ready to open up here into 1 John and read, I pray that it would not be about what I want to say. This is about what you have already said through your author, John, how you inspired this with your Holy Spirit, and you've embedded these truths for us even here in 2018. And so would you help each of us? We, we come in with different uh, theological understandings. We come in with different uh, uh, backgrounds. We, we, we come in with questions. Some of us are we're coming in uh, uh, happy and joyful. Some of us are coming in struggling right now. And so, God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would take one man's words and you would use them to penetrate the hearts of people and hit them exactly where they are at. And so that's why I ask that you be our ultimate teacher today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, your Bible should be already opened up to 1 John. Today we're going to do verse 5 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2. Let me read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If I were to write a book on how to destroy a church family, I think the number one thing I would put in there is to tell the church to be full of hypocrites. Like if they just would go and preach one thing, but go and do the opposite, they would successfully destroy that church in, in really almost no time at all. And so I would encourage them to preach against gossiping and yet tear people down behind their backs. I, I would tell them to, to proclaim the evils of like alcohol or, or overeating as they enjoy a beer at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Or to preach against lust, but make sure that they see you looking at someone's body who isn't your spouse. If they would do those things and other similar things on a repeated basis, they will successfully destroy the church. Because nothing rankles us like hypocrisy. We hate it. It drives us nuts when we see people say one thing and go and do another. It just grates against who we are as humans. But there's a problem. All of us are hypocrites. It, don't, don't believe me? Let, let's do a little exercise. We've actually done this once here before, but let's, let's play again. All right, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you believe that lying is wrong. Now, I'm not talking about the keep the birthday gift a secret type of lie. I'm talking about just bald face, protect your reputation type of lies. All right. How many of you would say that is wrong? Okay. Most hands went up. If your hand did not go up, I'm going to probably have a few trust issues with you. Uh, but most of us would say, yeah, lie, lying is, is wrong. You, you should not lie. All right. Now, of those of you who raised your hands and those of you who knew you probably should have raised your hands, but just didn't want to play along. How many of you lied before? Yeah, we're all hypocrites. My, my hand's up with you as well. 
You see, that what we do is we judge others on their actions, but ourselves on our intentions. And we, we look at what they do, and it just drives us nuts, but we kind of make excuses for our own hypocrisy. And yet, John is making it clear that hypocrisy is a sin. He starts it there in verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. Now, the him here is Jesus. Last week, we saw verses 1 through 4 and how John was talking over and over and over about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So now, this, there's a message from Jesus, and he says that we proclaim to you, and here's the message, that God is light. And, and just to make it absolutely clear what he's saying, he says, and in him is no darkness at all. God is pure light. He is so pure, so holy, he cannot let darkness or sin into his presence. And there lies the problem, because he starts pointing out, we are hypocrites. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, all right, we're saying we have a relationship with God. While we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. In other words, we're hypocrites. We say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've got a relationship with God. But then we go and we do these hypocritical things. We lie when we say we shouldn't. We gossip when we say we shouldn't. We lust when we say we shouldn't. We overeat when we say we shouldn't. We do these things while we're judging other people for doing the same thing. And John is saying, if you're practicing these things, you're in darkness and you're not in the light. And God is pure light. He cannot let darkness into his presence. Otherwise, it's no longer pure light. John repeats himself just to drive the point home down to verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This leads to a mini debate that exists within Christendom. There are some Christians who would say that Christians can't sin. And so they would hear me teaching this right now, and they'd be going, whoa, whoa, wait a second, Aaron. Christians can't sin. John's, John's just talking about people who don't know Jesus yet. And I would actually argue, no, I, I think he's writing to Jesus' followers. These are people who have heard the gospel. They've said yes to following Jesus. And he's saying to them, hey, we sin. We screw up. The, the, the person who's not a, who, who would say, though, that Christians can't sin, they'd go, but Aaron, wait, John says over here, chapter 3, verse 6, and they, they might be using the New American Standard, which says this, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And, and so they would sit there and they'd say, see, if you say you know Jesus, you can't sin. But you got to remember that what we have to do with all of the scripture is when we have an isolated verse, we've got to look at it in context. And we need to look at it in context of where God put it in the letter, but we've got to see it in the broader book as well, as well as the, the broader history of it and, and, and on and on. All we have to do is look at the entire letter of 1 John. And yeah, he might say this over in chapter 3, verse 6, but what's he say over in chapter 1? That we sin. And so I think John would say to the person, oh, well, Christians can't sin. John would be like, um, no, have you hung out with anyone? Like, we, we Jesus followers, we still struggle with sin. But, but that leads to a mistake on the other side of the spectrum. They'd say, oh, then in that case, sin's no big deal. Like, it, it really, it's fine. Like, we all sin. We all screw up. So don't worry about it. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you may have slept with someone who wasn't your spouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may have lied, you know, to your professor. Yeah, yeah. You, you may have done this and this and this, but 
Everyone does it. Don't, don't worry about it. It's, not, it's really not that big of a deal. John, though, is not excusing sin. He's basically trying to point out that sin is a big deal. In fact, look down at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If sin was no big deal, he wouldn't bother writing a sentence like that. It's like, ah, guys, don't worry about it. No, he's saying, no, I don't want you to sin because sin is a problem. A perfect holy God who is pure light cannot let sin, darkness, into his presence. Here's how big sin is. When Adam and Eve were in the perfect Garden of Eden, and they committed one sin by eating of the forbidden fruit, all of the created order was affected. That's how big sin is. Immediately when they ate of that forbidden fruit, the relationship between God and man became broken. The relationship between humans became strained. The relationship between humans and the earth around them became hard. And even the relationship with man within himself became difficult because the image of God within them that gave them spiritual life became broken and they died spiritually in that moment. Everything was affected because of one sin. And so we can't have a cavalier attitude and be like, ah, it's no big deal. It is a big deal because it cost Jesus his life. And that's what John is trying to help point out to us. That there is a way out of the darkness. The way into the light is through Jesus. First, he points out that there is something that we need to do to come into the light. That's found in verse 9. He writes this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that sounds easy. Oh, okay, all we have to do is confess and voila, you know, like magic, our sins are just taken away. Yeah, but have you ever truly confessed? It is so hard because you're saying, admitting, I did wrong. And sometimes that is the most difficult thing to do. I don't know about you. I, I find myself able to confess to God. I believe in a, in a God that being omniscient, om, omnipotent, uh, you know, all of the omnis, like he's fully aware of what I have done. What I've done is not surprised him. And so I find I can go to him and confess my sin. But it's when I need to go and confess to my wife or when I get together on Wednesdays with Phil and confess to Phil or I need to go and, and confess to another friend. Like, here's what I did. That's when it gets hard. That's when it's difficult because now my reputation takes a ding. Now, it, you know, I, I've just exposed like, yeah, I'm not quite as perfect as I want to make everyone think I am. That's not easy. But notice what happens when we humble ourselves, we get broken and we confess our sins. God forgives us. He doesn't hold it against us any longer. He washes us of that sin. And he makes it very clear what it is exactly that washes us, that forgives us of that sin. Back up in verse 7, he said, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It is the blood of Jesus. And because John can't help but repeat himself, he puts it yet another way down in chapter 2. Uh, go down to the second half of verse 1 of chapter 2. But if anyone does sin, there it is, all right? So we, you can't say, well, Christians don't sin. John's saying, no, uh, if you do sin, he's basically saying, when you sin. 
But it's also like, oh, it's no big deal because of what he's about to say next. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What, what a picture. It's almost like we step into court and we stand there guilty. And the judge, God the Father, is on his throne. He's got the gavel in his hand. And he's about to say, guilty, condemned. And Jesus rushes in and goes, no, 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 no. I covered it. I've paid the penalty. They're fine. They're forgiven. It's over. And God accepts that. And, and John has to go on. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The uh, English Standard Version, which I'm using today, they, they love putting in their translation big theological words. They, they, I don't know if it, it makes it more robust or something. And so they choose this word propitiation. Now, most translations, they, they put it as an atoning sacrifice. I think that's a good definition, an atoning sacrifice. But I was looking up propitiation, and I, I actually find myself really kind of liking that they left the propitiation in there. Because if you were to go to the Oxford Dictionary or Webster's, you'd find a definition kind of like this, that to propitiate means to appease a god or try to regain a god's favor. I remember when I was working part-time at Meyer Pharmacy here in uh, Waverly, I had been told that there were some treats back in the break room. And so I naturally found an excuse to get back there. And it was a humongous tin of Russell Stover's candies, like the kind that needs a map. You know, they, they, they tell you, like, this one is fruit and nut in it. This one is, is caramel. This is dark chocolate. This has coconut. You know, and so we're sitting there, you know, all lusting after this chocolate going, oh, which one do I want? And one of the other employees is there. And, and she looks at someone eating lunch just kind of next to it and says, hey, do you want one? And the girl eating lunch says, oh, no, I, I can't. I gave up chocolate for Lent. And my coworker standing right next to me says, ooh, that's tough. And the girl eating lunch says, yeah, this sucks. I have hated every moment of this. This has been so hard. I hope God is happy. She's, in a sense, trying to appease God. She's trying to regain his favor. And we're not much different. Sometimes we try to, you know, pray the right things or, or, you know, pray certain words or just pray enough. Or, or we think if I, if I read my Bible enough times or if I listen to enough sermons, if I, you know, read my devotionals enough, if, if I just go and do enough good things, if I just come to, to church on enough times, if I, you know, worship God in a certain way, then he'll be happy. And so often we find ourselves trying to appease a God or regain his favor. John is saying, no, it's not what you sing. It's not what you pray. It's not what you wear. It's not what you do. It's what God has already done. It isn't about trying to put on the right clothes or put on the right attitude, putting on these things. It's that you put on the righteousness of Jesus. Like you are covered in the blood of Christ. And the judge, when he gets ready to bring the gavel down, suddenly sees the blood and realizes, my son, and he stops and he forgives us. Jesus is our propitiation. He alone is the one who has appeased God. The only thing we do is confess. And that is why today, I just want to create some space for you to confess. We're going to open up the, the uh, communion tables. And we're just going to have a couple of songs. And we're just going to let you have some space to confess. 
Now, normally when you come to the stations, sometimes you take the, the elements right there. Sometimes you bring them back to your, your seats here. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. Today, I'm just going to ask that you take the elements and you bring them back to your chair and don't take it right away. I'm going to encourage you to hold on to it. And as, as Lexi and Amanda lead us in a song, I just want you to spend some time talking to God. What, what is it that you need to confess? Is it some actions? Is it some attitudes? Is it maybe the way you treated someone at home, at work, at school? What is it that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind and says, that right there, that's dark. And I don't want that to be a part of you because I want you fully enveloped in my light. So I want you to spend just some time confessing. And then after about a minute or so of just that confession, then I want you to take the elements. And as you take that bread, remembering that's the body of Christ, and as you take that cup, remembering that that is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins, now I want you to shift from confession to thanksgiving. That you humbly thank Jesus for going to the cross and dying our death, for being our propitiation, knowing that it is through him that God's wrath against sin is appeased. And God gladly welcomes us into his presence because of what Jesus has done for us. And may that then cause us to just exalt and rejoice and sing praise to God. If you are a first-time guest with us, I just want to say a couple of things. First, thank you so much for coming. I realize you took a risk to come to a church that doesn't even have its own building. And we meet in an ugly building down at the, four, the uh, fairgrounds. It, that took a risk, so thank you for coming. But I want you to not worry about these elements as much as I want you to think about Jesus. The story's true. I would love for you today to apply verse 9, that you today, for the first time, would confess your sin knowing that he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And as you are cleansed of your sin, the darkness is removed and you are brought into his marvelous light. I would love for today to be your spiritual birthday. If you are ready to make that sort of a decision, during this time of prayer, I'm going to encourage you, tell God, confess your sin and accept his forgiveness. And if you make that decision today, on that blue connection card on the back is just a thing just saying that today I began to follow Jesus. Would you just mark that? Our, our goal at Riverwood is not to get as many of those check marks as we can. That is simply to let us know so that we can begin to help you in following Jesus. Because for us, it's not just to find Jesus, it's to find and follow Jesus. And we want God to work so much in your life that you too begin to look like Jesus, that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. If you're a first-time guest here today and you've already made a decision like that, I want you to know that these communion tables are open to you. These are for anyone who knows the truth of the gospel and seeks to live a Jesus-centered life. No, it does not mean you come perfect. That's the whole point. We come broken. We come knowing we have dark areas in our life. And today, by taking these elements, we are inviting Jesus to shine his light into every crevice of our, our being. And we want him to have his way in us. And so if you're a first-time guest but are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to join our church family. So Lexi, Amanda, would you come up? As they prepare to, to lead us, would you just let me pray? And then at any time during the song, you guys may come to the table.
So Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. It's absolutely remarkable. Because we were sinners. There was, there was darkness in us. We are a bunch of hypocrites. And yet you loved us so much, you still came and you still died in our place on that cross. And that's why we say thank you. And so God, as we come to these elements, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you would put on our lips the words that we need to confess, the areas that we have been falling short, the areas that we have not been like Jesus. God, I believe that you want to continue to do so much more in us because you have plans and dreams to do so much through us. So God, would you help us to come broken, to come humbly, to come knowing that you are a good God. And so before you, we can trust you and we can confess openly. You already know what we have done. Help us to bring those things into the light to ourselves so that we can be reminded that you wash away our sin and has made us white as snow. And so, God, we now come in remembrance of your Son.